What a fabulous introduction to Ephesians, and that is just the beginning. A wonderful book that we are going to be studying together, and I pray that we will do so for our sanctification and for His glory. I still remember very clearly with a mix of humor and shame the first night of freshman orientation when the whole student body gathered and a seemingly impossibly old man who was probably about my current age stood up in front of the student body and in a painful monotone asked, who are you? Who am I? And without inflection and without joy, (laughs) proceeded to talk to us about identity. And you know what? I probably should have paid closer attention than I did. Uh, The next two years of my life, in retrospect, were a time of searching, a time in which I was trying to figure out, who am I? And it wasn't always pretty. That time of crisis that many of us go through in our late teens or early adulthood in which we are figuring our place in the world is common. Uh, And in our day, a crisis of identity just grips our nation. Uh, It grips many as we are lost in the digital world as the government and commerce define us uh, by numbers and by formularies. And people want to have something that makes them stand out from that way that we are identified, something that makes us individual, something that makes us special, something that gives us value apart from the way that we are defined by the world around us. And of course, some of the most obvious things that we see are are the crisis in gender identity that grips so many, but it's not just that. A crisis of identity grips many of us as we grapple with our past. Is that who I am and what does that mean? as we struggle to understand ourselves in a present and confusing world, as we wonder about the future, which seems increasingly dark, we ask ourselves, who am I? And how do I relate to you? And how do I relate to the world around me? And then it's not just true of individuals. It's true of our nation. It's true of our culture. We don't know who we are anymore, and we don't know who we ought to be. And it's true of the church to some extent. As the culture around us changes, we as believers and we as a church are wrestling with how do we relate to the world? What are the, what are the bridge points or the connections that we can make with the world without compromising? What is the role of the church in modern society, a crisis of identity is very real and assaults us every day. And that is a very good reason 
to study the book of Ephesians. As one commentator has boiled it down, the book of Ephesians is about identity formation and then living out that identity. In order to understand more of that, we, we have to spend some time looking at the situation in which the Ephesian church was located. And so I want to spend some time this morning talking specifically about the city of Ephesus within the Roman world. And we need to understand that Ephesus wasn't just some backwater like it actually is now. Ephesus was a leading city, a great city in the ancient world. It was a city of political significance. In the Roman Empire, pretty much you had Rome and Alexandria, and Ephesus would have been the third leading city of the Roman Empire at that time. It was a huge city. The estimate that I read most in the course of this week was 250,000 people in the city itself and in its environs. And if you go back and think about the ancient world and the lack of multi-story buildings, you get an idea of the massive population and the influence of a city that had been a center, a culture and a political center from the ancient Greeks through the Persians, through Alexander the Great, and then as part of the Roman Empire. It was a city of economic significance. Ephesus was located in a harbor and was the gateway into Asia Minor. Asia Minor was probably one of the richest areas of the Roman Empire, and Ephesus was the way into it and the way out. It was the center of trade. So I was thinking through cities in the U.S., it would be kind of like Chicago a hundred years ago. It was the gateway to this vast, rich region as a center of commerce and a center of communication. It was wealthy. It was cosmopolitan, but most of all, it was pagan. Ephesus was a center of pagan worship, not only in that area, but in the known world. The, the myths or the legends surrounding the founding of Ephesus go back to a thousand years before Christ, when the image of Artemis, the fertility goddess, fell from the heavens and landed in that area. So, of course, most modern scholars believe that a meteorite with a unique form fell and landed in this area. And in that place, a little shrine was built. That shrine developed around it a fertility cult dedicated to the goddess Artemis. Eventually, that was turned into a huge and beautiful temple. It was destroyed in one of those invading armies and then was rebuilt about 400 years before Christ into one of the seven wonders of the modern world. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this because we need to understand the significance of the cult of Artemis for the believers who were living in its shadow. Antipater of Sidon, the guy who documented the seven wonders of the ancient world, said, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon on which there was a road for chariots, and on the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. 
But when I saw the house of Artemis, I marveled. When I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliance. And I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. The temple of Artemis had double rows of pillars that were 40 feet high, and then the roof ascended above that. It was built out of marble. It was four times the size of, forgotten the word, the Parthenon in Athens. Four times the size of the famous Parthenon. It was the largest building in the ancient world. And in that temple was the cult of this fertility goddess with all of its pagan rituals, with all of its idolatry, with all of the immorality that would be associated with that. The cult was so famous that all the way from Egypt and over to Mesopotamia and even in the far reaches of Scandinavia in the north, Artemis was known and worshipped. And people from all over the ancient world would travel there to see this wonder and to participate in the rituals. Ephesus was dominated. That's what it was known by. It would be like if you lived in New York City in 2002. Oh, you're from New York? Tell me about 9-11. Where you were, what happened? It was the defining moment for anybody who lived in that region. The temple of Artemis, the cult of Artemis, pagan idol worship penetrated into the marketplace, penetrated into politics and every bit of daily life. You went into the market, there were the little images. You went into the theater, there were the proclamations. Daily conversation, life was overshadowed by pagan worship in Ephesus. And this is what Paul entered into. Because not only was Ephesus a great city in the ancient world, Ephesus became for Paul a great door for effective service. Those are actually the words that he used as he described his ministry there. Ephesus pops up at various points through the book of Acts. He had wanted to go into Asia Minor, which would mean going to Ephesus in Acts 16, but the Holy Spirit turned them aside and sent them over into Europe. But in Acts 18, Paul is able to make a brief visit and a promising visit into Ephesus. And seeing the potential there, he actually leaves Priscilla and her husband Aquila in Ephesus to continue the ministry. They are soon joined by Apollos, who has some idea of the gospel but doesn't understand completely. And so Priscilla and Aquila disciple and teach Apollos, and that forms a team of ministry in that city. But Paul, at this point, is eager to move on uh, to Antioch to wrap up his first trip, and so he leaves that team there. In Acts 19, we see Paul coming back through And he decides to stay in Ephesus because he sees the value of the ministry there. And in fact, he spends two to three years in Ephesus. At first, he's in the synagogue. When he meets some opposition there, he actually moves into a secular lecture hall and spends hours, 
every day teaching the people from the Scriptures about Jesus, about the Gospel, and about following the way of Christ. And the work is effective. Need to, again, have in our minds this situation, this vast city with this huge economy and this thing that is developing among them following the way of Jesus. It begins to take effect in the form of miracles, amazing things happening as the Apostle Paul carries on his ministry. Then we see moments of spiritual warfare where the power of Christ is shown to be dominant over the pagan gods. We see it as the gospel becomes so effective that former sorcerers and magicians get together and they burn their books. And in modern terms, it's about $6 million worth of books and magical implements that are piled together and burned. The effect of the faith is becoming so powerful that the economy of the city is being affected. Think about that. This vast city, the third power of the Roman Empire, is seeing economic impact as people stop following the way of Artemis and the other gods, the emperor cults and the other cults within the region, and are starting to follow Jesus. And so those who used to make great money and now are making less money raise a riot against the fledgling religion. And the crowd rushes through the marketplace into the theater. This theater stands at the head of a long valley. And the mountains echo with the cries of the people, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours, they continue this cry. Paul wants to speak to the crowd. It's way too dangerous a situation. He is discouraged from doing so and actually leaves the city. But the faith continues and the church continues to grow. While Paul was there, he wrote to the church in Corinth and said, a great door for effective service has been opened for me. The description of Luke the historian is that not only Ephesus, but the entire province of Asia was reached with the gospel during those years that Paul was located in that city. He had, as one commentator said, he had assaulted a stronghold of pagan religion with all of the active life and commerce associated with such a vast cult. He had entered into a key city that was a focal point of communication for the entire province and won it for Jesus Christ. Paul moves on, and approximately five years later, he writes a letter to the churches in Ephesus and in the surrounding region. And once again, we've got to understand, a vast city with a church that was so large as to have an impact on the life and the cult and the economy of the city, meeting in homes. There's a lot of people in a lot of different places. There's not one big mega church, 
There's tons of little churches in the city and in the surrounding countryside. Five years later, many people in those churches don't actually personally know Paul. They've heard of him. Many of those converts don't have the Jewish background of the faith. They are non-Jews who have come to the faith. And so he, approaching perhaps the end of his career, is writing his summary letter of the glories of the gospel to a people who are surrounded by an idolatrous, materialistic culture, a people who have been steeped in the occult and spiritual warfare, a people who are living the effects of racial racial hatred and moral abandonment around them and telling them who they are and how they can live in the world. I hope that we are beginning to see that this is a letter about identity and living out identity. And it's not just a letter for people in Ephesus almost 2,000 years ago. It's a letter for us today. As Paul is writing to them, the first thing that he does is identify himself and who he is as he writes to them. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So the first thing that jumps out at us is this idea of apostleship. And we need to grasp it because it's about authority and about his authority to speak into their lives, and his authority to speak into our lives. We all know about the 12 apostles, right? Well, one of the things we understand in the book of Acts is that the essential characteristics identified in those 12 apostles is that they had been with Christ and they were witnesses of the resurrection. After Judas did away with himself, Having betrayed Christ, the 11 apostles decide to appoint a 12th. And that's specifically what they say. We need somebody who's been with Jesus and somebody who is going to be a witness of the resurrection of Christ. And so they make their choice among that group of men. But besides the 12 apostles, you might say apostles with a capital A, There are other apostles in the New Testament because what the word boils down to is someone who is sent on a mission with authority, someone who is a representative, who is an envoy, someone who goes to speak for someone else. And so throughout the New Testament, people are sent with the message of Christ to establish churches. And so we have Barnabas called an apostle, and James, the brother of the Lord, is called an apostle, and Silvanus, and Epaphroditus, and Andronicus, and Junia. They are identified throughout the New Testament letters as apostles with a small a. Not one of the twelve, but sent out with authority and a commission to carry on a work. And then you have Paul, who is kind of all on his own. Because in one sense, he is one of those. Acts chapter 13, they laid their hands on him and they sent out Paul on mission. But in another sense, he is a big A apostle. Now, how does that work? 
He wasn't a follower of Jesus when Jesus walked the earth. And in fact, he was a persecutor of those who claimed to be witnesses of the resurrection. Well, Paul had an encounter with Jesus. The post-ascension glorified Jesus appears to Paul on one of his journeys to persecute the church and drives him to his knees and in conversation with him powerfully converts that man to be a follower of Jesus and then says, you go. I am appointing you as a servant and as a witness In other words, the things that you do and the things that you say, Paul, will have the authority of Jesus Christ behind them. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul identifies himself as an apostle abnormally born. It's a totally new case, something completely unexpected, last of all and least of all. Along comes Paul as an apostle of Jesus Christ. One who has authority to speak and to represent. He brought his world and he brought us the words of Jesus Christ. On top of that, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In other words, he's pointing out that this isn't something that he decided for himself, and it's not something that's really inherent to anything particularly special about Paul. In fact, he describes himself in in pretty self-deprecating terms throughout his letters. I am the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of Christ. I am the greatest of sinners. I am weak of speech and come with fear and trembling. There's nothing about the man himself that draws us to him, but by the will of God, he has been appointed an apostle. That phrase, the will of God, appears four times in the first 11 verses of chapter 1. And each time it's pointing out that those who receive something by God's will are simply recipients of grace. God is the one who initiated. God is the one who carries it out. God is the one who gives the grace. Paul is an apostle not because of anything special about himself, but because of how very special is God's decision and God's grace. And we're spending so much time on that because we have to understand that we need an authority external to ourselves to help us answer questions about ourselves. It is one of the tragedies of the modern world that people define themselves and eventually define God by their own terms and their own values. How I feel today, what I think today, that, according to me, is truth. 
and changing and conforming and perverting reality in order to match my opinion, which is probably going to change tomorrow or next year or whenever. When we make ourselves an authority to ourselves, we lose any possibility of strong identity. But Paul and the writers of Scripture speak to us the very words of God. When he says who we are, he's speaking truth, capital T, something that you can build a foundation and that you can live a life based on. And so Paul says, I'm writing to you as a messenger of Jesus Christ. Listen to these words. And then right away, he begins to talk to them about who they are. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God the Father, and then he continues, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing he has to say to them is that they are holy. Some versions say to the saints in Ephesus. It's an interesting word, and it can be a little bit confusing. Our modern understanding of the saints is that they are these old people who did wonderful things and probably never sinned and ought to be venerated or worshipped or something like that. We don't even have saints, right, in, in our church. And Paul says, no, you're all saints. He's writing to the saints of God in Ephesus, to the holy people of God. Now, we understand that doesn't mean that they are particularly holy people. Favorite example of that is that he writes to the saints in Corinth who are living in immorality and slander and division and error. And with all the horrible things that are going on in Corinth, he still is able to write to them and call them the saints, the holy ones of God who are in Corinth. How can that be? It's because holy doesn't mean perfect. Holy in regard to us, in regard to the people in Ephesus or Corinth, doesn't mean that every day is filled with admirable things. Holy means set apart. Set apart from something and set apart for something. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, believer in Ephesus, believer in Cary, North Carolina, you have been taken out of the world, out of all that paganism and materialism and occult magical thinking, you've been taken out of that and claimed for God, claimed for Jesus Christ, set apart to him and set apart for his glory. That's why he's able to call them and he's able to call us saints. And that's important because sometimes we look at the facts of how we live 
and we beat ourselves up or we let the accuser beat us up. You're not worthy of being called a follower of Christ. Look at how you live. Look at what you say. Look at what you think. Look at what you fall into. But Jesus says, no, that one is mine. That one is holy. That one is set apart for me. So the first key factor of their identity is that they belong to God. They are set apart for him. And God looks on them because of Jesus Christ as holy. Then he goes on to say that they are faithful. Another version might say believers. To the believers in Ephesus or to the faithful ones in Ephesus. There's confusion in the translation because in the language in which Paul wrote, those are the same word. To be a believer or to be faithful, it's the same thing. That's important to understand as well. We kind of draw this line between when I believed and how I live now. And there's no line. Believing isn't acknowledging a set of facts at some point in the past that doesn't have any impact on how I live today. If I believed in the sense of saying, yes, Jesus, everything that you say about me is true, my sinfulness, my neediness, my lostness, but the fact that you took my sin and went to the cross in my place, and you died for me so that I can have forgiveness and life and hope and can follow you. If I did that then, then I'm still doing that now. I didn't believe sometime. I am a believer, and if I am a believer, then I am a follower, and I'm living that out day to day. They are faithful in Christ, because their faith is something that is worked out in their life. That's the second point as he's identifying who they are. They are called and set apart as holy because they belong to God, and they are living that out day to day as they follow the Jesus in whom they place their faith and who is living through them. Then the third way that he identifies them is in Christ. 38 times in the book of Ephesians, we run across the phrase, in Christ or in him. It is probably the most significant phrase and thought in the book. And it is referring not to something just kind of mundane, yeah, I believe in Jesus. It is referring to a sphere of spiritual existence into which we entered along with Christ and in which we live day to day and in which we have a future. 
This isn't in Ephesians, but a great example that you've probably thought about before. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. When you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you identified yourself with him, and you exited an old world and an old way of thinking, and you entered into a new sphere of spiritual existence in which everything has changed. Not only who we are, but how we live if we are in Christ. And all throughout this book, we're going to see what it means to be in Christ because that is our basic identity as believers. You are in Christ, and that changes everything. And so then the letter to Ephesians goes on to talk about these things. The first three chapters Paul devotes to talk to Uh, defining more clearly their identity in Jesus Christ. Talks about being chosen and adopted and sealed, set apart for God. He talks about the, the way that we are empowered with the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. I'm so excited that the calendar has those verses on Easter Sunday. We're going to talk about the resurrection power of Christ at work in us talks about barriers that are broken down between people in Christ, talks about us as a building, talks about us as the bride of Christ, what it means to be a church. This is the identity that we have in Christ, the first three chapters. Lord willing, this is what we are going to study up until the summer. Over the summer, because there's a lot of in and out We're going to skip ahead and we're going to do one-off sermons on the armor of God from Ephesians chapter 6. And then, uh, Lord willing, for the fall, I hope Jesus comes first, but we're making plans. uh, For the fall, chapters 4 through 6 up until Christmas season. So that's the plan for the year. We make plans. God directs. We're going to see what happens. Uh, But... I believe, and I am praying, and I hope that you will pray as well, that this can be a significant study for the life of our church and for the life of us as believers, because it's a study about identity in an age in which we must not be defined by our past and in which We must be secure, function, and live securely in who we are in Jesus Christ and in which we are confident of the future because of who we are in Christ. I think we need that. I trust that God will form us in that. It's an important study because we need to maintain vitality in an age of decline. One of the things we didn't mention was that already in Paul's day, that harbor was starting to fill up with silt. And the Roman Empire would occasionally do these great civil engineering projects to try and clear out the harbor of Ephesus. But time 
and erosion are relentless. Ephesus is now six miles from the coast as that harbor eventually became marshland and now hard land. As the city lost its economic source, it entered into decline already in Paul's day. There was economic decline, and instead of commerce, it was looking at tourism. You know how dying cities often turn to tourism? Well, that happened in Ephesus as well. But it wasn't just economic decline. It was moral decline and the political decline of the Roman Empire. How do you maintain vitality in an age of decline? It's an important book because in Ephesians we see the basis for unity in a fractured age. And oh, how very fractured is our culture and it tries to enter into our church. And Paul says, God is building one building with one new people. And so we'll see the basis for unity in a fractured age. We'll see what it means to be the church and to serve in the church. Every once in a while I hear something along the lines of, don't really need the church, Jesus and me, we're good. And Jesus says, no, I'm building my church. The church, the Word of God and the Spirit of God active through the church is sanctifying power in our lives and as God's means of work in the world. So what does it mean to be part of a church? What does it mean to be part of the body of Christ? How do we live and serve together? We'll see that in Ephesians. In Ephesians, we'll see about healthy family and work relationships. I think we could use a little bit of that. And in Ephesians... We will learn about victory in the battle against the dark forces that rage around us. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood. We can think that it is. But it's against spiritual powers that are arrayed against us and against the church. And Paul says, we have the victory. Sometimes we believe lies about ourselves. The world wants to say, you're worthless. Ephesians, God tells us that we have value as he chose us from eternity past in Christ. The world tells us we are inadequate God tells us that the resurrection power of Christ is at work in you. The world tells us that we're trash. Sometimes our own conscience, that voice at work in us. God says, you once were, but now you are in Christ. The world wants to exclude us. We feel left out. Paul tells us, you belong. You've been included. Those voices sometimes tell us, I can never change. 
God tells us you can be totally new in Christ. Sometimes we feel like we can't make a difference. How can little old me have any impact on the world around me, especially because of all my failures and inadequacies? God says, you are gifted. You are made part of a body. You have been placed in the world in order to make a difference, to bring each other to maturity and the fullness of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we think I can never figure out my relationships in my family and in the world. Paul says when you're in Christ, your relationships are transformed. And sometimes we think we can never win. And Paul tells us that the power of Christ is at work in us. We have victory over every other power and in every situation. So let's jump into Ephesians together and pray that God will use it for his glory. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is powerful. Thank you that your word engenders faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Thank you that your word makes us practically day-to-day holy. Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. These are things that we cannot do. We can't save a single soul. We can't change ourselves. You do this through your word. And so, again, we submit ourselves to your word, asking for your work among us. In Jesus' name, amen.